1 Peter chapter 3 is our text for this morning, and we will be looking at verses 13 through 17. This is God's word for us today. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Will you bow with me and pray? Lord, again we say thank you. Lord, I am deeply grateful just for the joyful things we get to sing. I am grateful to know that no matter what the world throws at us, you will hold us fast. I am grateful that you will keep your people, that you are sovereign over us in all things. And I would pray that you will exercise, God, your grace and your goodness and your sovereignty even now, that we might know you better and that we might have from you what we need so that we can honor you and we can live for you in a world that can be harsh, difficult. Lord, you know we need you. You know we are sinners in need of grace. You know that our hearts are easily discouraged. And we would ask you that today, you be magnified. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you be seated? One of the more interesting classes that I was allowed to take when I was in seminary was a class called Job and the Wisdom Literature. And when you think that, think Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. And those books are poetic and they're beautiful. Did any of you love Ecclesiastes and Job as texts? Did any of you go, I don't know what to do with those books? That happens too, right? But if you're going to understand, especially Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs well, you need to grasp what those books are saying to the people of God living in a fallen world. And so here's a little rule of thumb. A fair way for you to understand the book of Proverbs is to know that it's a book of wisdom that tells us how life in general works. Proverbs tells us how things should go and how they often do go. Proverbs tells us that people who work hard do better in life. Proverbs tell us that people who are dishonest and nasty, they get in trouble. Proverbs tell us that parents who teach their children well have kids who grow up and follow their parents' standards. But don't we all also know that 
those things, while they may be usually true, are not universally true. Is that, is that right? Sometimes bad guys get ahead in life. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes hardworking, good guys finish at the back of the pack. This week in the news, we saw that, I don't know if you guys looked at the local news and the national news, but Robin Leach died this last week. Remember that guy? I'm going to resist the urge to do a Robin Leach for you. But what did, he, what did he focus on? Remember, his whole career until he became a reporter here in Vegas, and even while he was here, but especially his, his career when he had a television career, was to magnify for you the success and the extravagance of the rich and famous. Would you say that all those who were the rich and famous that, that Leach profiled, that they were always the good people who were just faithful hard workers? No? Not always, were they? And sometimes children who have been raised well rebel against their parents. You've seen that too, haven't you? Well, if Proverbs is all you've got, you might wonder if the wisdom literature really is that wise. Does the wisdom literature really understand the real world? And that's why I think we have books like Job and Ecclesiastes, and they're super helpful. Ecclesiastes, among other things, we see in that book that the teacher is bothered deeply by the fact that bad guys often finish ahead of good guys. It's just not fair. In Job, we see a guy who looks like a good guy, and he suffers terribly, and it's just not fair. And in both books, we see, you know what? God is still good, and God is still sovereign overall. Even if those experiencing this fallen world cannot understand it, God is still good. And Job and Ecclesiastes point our minds toward eternity when the Lord over all will make all things right. And when Peter writes to Christians who are living in a hard world in the first century, I think Peter knew it's awfully hard for believers to keep their focus in a world where things don't always work out the way we wish they would. Because sometimes righteous conduct, yeah, it's rewarded. And sometimes honoring God makes your life miserable. Have you ever, be honest, have you ever felt that pressure? You ever, you ever struggled with the balance of emotions that come when you realize that if I do what's right, it's probably going to cost me? Have you ever seen that being a gospel people sometimes leads to our good and sometimes it leads to our hardship? If so, you know a little of what I would call, I guess I'm kind of using the term gospel suffering, meaning suffering for gospel causes. Well, this morning we're going to find four points in five verses here in 1 Peter that I hope are going to help us think well about living to the glory of God when it's easy and when it's hard. Let's learn from our Lord how to live in a fallen world, how to live through potential gospel suffering. You ready? First point of four. Live godly for blessing. Live godly for blessing. Look at 13 to the beginning of 14. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now Peter, in this section, has been calling on the church to submit to authorities and to conduct themselves decently in society. 
You and I are supposed to honor governors. We're supposed to submit to bosses. We're supposed to be the best husbands and wives we can be. We're supposed to love each other inside the church with a God-honoring, humble, Christian gentleness, with a brotherly affection in the church, even as we unite together around the truth of the Word of God. And in society, Peter said in the last section, we're supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to have guarded speech. We're supposed to be peacemaking people. And Peter wrapped up what we studied last week with that reminder from Psalm 34 that God is going to do rightly. He's going to bless his children. He's going to judge those who oppose him. And now Peter extends that sort of last thought about God doing rightly. And he's going to begin with a rhetorical question. He asks... Who is there to harm us if we're zealous for what is good? What is the implied answer that Peter is expecting? You know even without being told. What's the answer? Who can harm us if we're zealous for doing good? What's the answer? Nobody. The implied answer that God is inspiring is there is nobody to harm you if you're zealous for what is good. So first, friends, grasp that being zealous having a deep commitment to, having a deep passion for what is right, that's a good thing. Clearly, Peter wants you and me to have a zeal for the good. So even as we begin, even right now, start with a question, how can I be zealous for what is good? And the answer here is not so hard to grasp as you might think. Executing the plan can be tough, but the answer is not tough. How do we become zealous for the good? We become zealous for the good when we love God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves. How's that? Does that sound like a zeal for good to you? When you look at situations in life, aren't those the keys? Is what I want to do, is it going to help me love God and honor God or not? Is what I want to do going to help me love others or not? Are my actions and my desires in keeping with the word of God or not? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness or not? Do I delight in the word and the ways of the Lord or not? But you get those right and you'll see that you're developing zeal for the Lord. Who can harm you if you're zealous for good? Who could ever, who could ever harm you if you're shaping your life toward what is right? Okay, now stop and live in the real world. What is the answer? Will somebody harm you for doing good? Sometimes. Who was Peter writing to? People that were living in the first century in the Roman Empire in the 60s AD with Nero on the throne. What could they have said? Who would ever harm you if you, if you do good? Nero? There's one Pete. Now, here's the thing, guys. On the one hand, the answer to who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good is nobody. Because in general, like Proverbs would say, you do good, you conduct yourself with wisdom and love, people will respond to you in kind. Isn't that kind of true in the the world for the most part? If you're a decent person, people treat you decently. You'd say mostly true? Nine times out of ten? Four times out of five? In general, if we do good to other people, other people treat us well and they don't try to hurt us. That is a basically true thing. And I don't think Peter is overlooking that. That's basically true. So live like he told you to and expect it to result in good generally. 
But we also know in the real world, there are people who will most certainly try to harm us for doing good. There are people out there who would try to force Christians to do evil things. Can you believe that, by the way, that anyone would ever do that? There are people out there that will hate us for not joining us in their evil practices and their evil ways. There are people who would try to make Christians lose their jobs, lose their businesses, lose their public standing because the Christian just won't embrace and applaud the sin of the world. So what about that, Peter? The answer Peter would give you is one of eternal perspective. Look at the first sentence of verse 14 again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Even if you suffer for doing good, even if the world comes at you, even if the world tries to crush you for not following them and applauding their depravity, even if they hurt you, you will be blessed. Blessing is the result of whatever the world tries to do to you. Jesus taught us the same sort of thing, by the way. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said what? If we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, we actually end up blessed. Christian, stop. Stop. Look at me. Think about this. Do you believe your Savior? Do you believe God's word here? Can you really accept this is true? If the world attacks you because of righteousness, God has so much blessing for you that you should rejoice even if you suffer. Can you buy that? Paul said the same thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, one of my favorite, favorite passages. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Pause the verse. You all know Paul, right? Stoned, shipwrecked, beaten with sticks, lashes bloodied, bruised, imprisoned, death sentence on his head. That Paul, what does he say? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you believe that? Do you believe? 
do you that there is such a massive weight of glory and joy and peace awaiting us in eternity that we can walk through hardships in this life, even horrors in this life with the expectation of blessing on the other side. Do you get that? Do you buy it? There are two lessons in this point, friends. In general, as you live for righteousness, as you live to do good, you're going to experience good in this life. That's generally true. Like Proverbs are generally true. Even if it's not the universal experience of humanity, that's generally true. The more you and I are gentle and humble and kind in the world around us in general, the more we're going to find life to be more navigable. But the alternative is also true. We may suffer for doing that which honors God. And if we do, we must know that the Lord has a blessing, a glorious blessing awaiting us. The Lord has a blessing awaiting us. The Lord has a blessing awaiting us that is a million, billion, trillion times larger than the worst suffering we could ever face. So as we trust our Lord, we can live with a zeal for what is good. So Christian, live with that zeal for good. Do it and expect that your zeal, a scripture-saturated, Bible-directed zeal, is going to result in great blessing for us in eternity in Christ. Second point. Second point. Live godly for blessing was first. Secondly, fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. Look at 14, the end, to the beginning of 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. What are we supposed to do when we're threatened by the world? Peter gives us two commands here. He gives us a what not to do and a what to do instead. When Peter says, have no fear of them, the wording actually is kind of, kind of funny, kind of interesting. He uses two forms of the word for fear. It's almost like Peter says, don't fear their fear. Don't fear their frightening. And so Peter could be saying, don't be afraid of the bad guys. Or he could be saying, don't fear what frightens the other people around you. Don't fear them, no matter how frightening they try to be, or don't fear whatever the crowd around you is scared of. Either way, Peter is kind of loosely citing a passage from the book of Isaiah. Uh, there was a time when the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, was threatened by nasty, noisy enemy armies. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was a problem. The Syrians were a problem. And God was about to bring the Assyrian army in to wipe out the northern kingdom and threaten the southern kingdom. And it was going to be scary. And Isaiah said at that time, don't be afraid. God's got this. In Isaiah 8, 12 through 13, speaking of this, Isaiah says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear. There it is. Nor be in dread... But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So first, don't fear what the people around you fear. Don't fear the bad guys that are trying to frighten you. Don't be troubled, he says, Peter says, by them. Meaning, don't be stirred up by their threats. But what do you do instead of fearing those who would try to harm you? 
What do you fear instead of fearing the bad guys? Fear God. That's always the right alternative to being afraid of people. Instead of thinking to yourself that pure negative, don't fear man, don't fear man, don't fear man, don't fear man. No, 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 no. Put in your life a proper fear of God that shifts your perspective. As you face the malice of men, be more afraid of God. Consider what bothers you more. Because again, when I say afraid, I don't mean scared like, you know, like you might be scared if there's a mouse in your kitchen. Eek. It's not that kind of fear. Don't be afraid even like you might fear if you saw a snake in the garden. Be afraid like reverence, respect, putting all the weight of all the value on the Lord. Ask something like this. Am I more interested in trying to avoid evil people or am I more interested in honoring the God of the universe? Am I more interested in not being hurt by them or am I more interested in honoring the God of the universe? The point is that you develop such a desire for God and His glory that you are horrified, you're mortified by the concept of ever dishonoring that God. It should stab at your heart, the concept of fearing God, that should stab at your heart far more than facing the disapproval of other people. You should be far more willing to disappoint the world around you than you are to fail the glorious truth, word, law of your Lord. Does that make sense? By the way, what does Peter say in verse 14? Set apart who is holy in your text. Set apart the Lord Jesus. Christ is holy, right? In Isaiah, you know what's interesting? Isaiah 8.13 says, set apart the Lord of hosts as holy. That, dear friends, is another Trinitarian reference that tells us that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. And when we fear that evil men would harm us for doing that which is right, our response should first and foremost be that we will demonstrate through our actions and through our attitudes that the Lord Jesus is holy, that the Lord Jesus is our God, and that the Lord Jesus is our number one priority. Fearing God involves giving God the respect and the worship God deserves. Fearing God means you would rather suffer hardships in life than dishonor God. Seeing Jesus as holy is to recognize Jesus as above and beyond any other good you could ever imagine. Jesus defines good by his very being. And so we value Jesus above anything. And when the world tries to stop us from doing that which honors God, we will make a decision without question. We will decide, I want to honor God first more than I want to appease the world around me. Fear God, not man. Third point, be ready to explain your hope to others. Be ready to explain your hope to others. 15 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So if we're not supposed to fear the world... And if we're supposed to honor Christ as holy, how does that impact the way that we interact with the world? 
Do we run around and just shout invectives at everything that dishonors the Lord? How would your day go if you tried to do that just today? Seriously, how far could you drive in our city without needing to shout invectives at all that dishonors the Lord? You would be hoarse. Do we, do we go ahead and just set ourselves up to fight everything that is bad in this world and the system? Do you just go ahead and try to take it all on all at once? What did Peter tell us in the last section? Submit to authorities as much as you can. Be gracious. Be a peacemaker. So that probably means that setting up something like the Crusades of the 12th century is out of the question. So if you were thinking you would, don't. What do we do, though? Should we hide from the world? Should we refuse to engage? I've often thought that we would all do well if we just threw our money in together and bought a South American compound. Um, I don't think that's it either, though, do you? It's too hot. And humid. If Peter wanted us to remove ourselves from society, the commands about submission wouldn't make a lot of sense. So how do we set apart Jesus as holy even as we do not fear the world? Peter says one way to do this is to be constantly ready to give a defense to anyone who would ask for the reason for your hope. We're supposed to be as Christians prepared to explain to anyone who might ask us, how in the world can you have hope in the Lord when you live in this world? Now, the word behind the word defense, be ready for it to present a defense, is the Greek word apologia, or apologia. What do you want it to be? Anybody want to go for a soft G? Yeah. <laughs> Gamma seems like a strong letter to me, that's all I'm saying. I got nothing. It's the word we get apologetics from, though, if you don't know. And it's a word that means to defend, to give a reason for. We're supposed to be able to defend the reason for our hope. And this is not a command that, that is telling every Christian that it is your job to be set up with a pocket full of philosophical defenses of the faith against everyone who would question the existence of God or the canon of Scripture or the problem of evil. Now, by the way, is it okay and good for you to know how to, de how to defend against objections like that? Sure it is. You should be able to respond to any objection raised to the faith. Uh, you should be trying to learn that stuff. That's good for you. But I think the point actually here is that you be ready to explain and defend the reason you have hope. What is the logic behind you living unafraid of those who would harm you? Because, y'all, we don't make sense. Have you ever recognized that we don't make sense to the world? What, what is the logic of expecting a hardship in the here and now and smiling toward a blessing? That doesn't make sense to the world. What is it that keeps you going when the world opposes you? So I would say that while, yes, this is a great verse to call people to learn how to defend every aspect of the faith, I think this defense begins with you being deeply, intimately familiar with the actual gospel. Christian, and again, if you've been here for a while and you're already checked out because we've been talking at you too long, Christian, listen to me. I want a question for you. Do you know the gospel inside and out? Yes. 
You should be ready to explain to somebody exactly what the Word of God has taught you to believe about Jesus. So I'm asking you, can you? Could you explain to a coworker what it means that there is a God? Even if that coworker believes that God is like a force out there. Could you tell a coworker that there's a difference between the God of the Bible and the false gods of Islam or Mormonism or Hinduism? Could you help them know that that's not the same thing? Can you explain that God is the creator and the owner of the universe? That he's holy and that he will most certainly judge all rebellion against him. Can you explain to somebody that we are sinful and that we deserve judgment? Can you explain that our sin earns us hell? Not because we're better than anybody or worse than anybody, but because we fall infinitely short of God's perfection. And if we fall infinitely short of God's perfection, we deserve hell. Could you explain that? Can you explain that God the Father sent Jesus, who is God, God the Son, into the world to rescue God's children? Can you help somebody know about Jesus being God in the flesh and living an absolutely perfect human life, the one we never lived? Can you help people grasp that Jesus died as a sacrificial substitute in our place, punished by the Father to legally pay for every sin God would ever forgive? Can you explain that Jesus rose from the grave, conquered death, and he proved his identity, and he proved that he completed his mission? And can you help people understand if you want to be forgiven by God, you have to surrender yourself to God and to His Lordship? And are you willing to tell somebody that if they want heaven and if they want forgiveness, they've got to turn away from their sin and fully entrust their soul to Jesus Christ for salvation? You see, if you can explain that gospel, you could explain to somebody that the reason that you have hope is because you have Jesus. You can explain that because God has forgiven you, you live for Him eternally. You can explain that your hope and your joy is not in this present life. This life can be beautiful, but your hope and your joy is not here. No, your hope is in the life to come. You can explain that your place is not here in a sinful world, but seated with Christ in glory forever. You can tell them, my hope is not that everything in my life is going to work out fine. My hope is not that I'm going to get the house that I want. My hope is not that I'm going to get the job that I want. My hope is not that I'll get the health that I want. My hope is not that I'll get the family that I want. My hope is not that I will get the ease and peace and wealth that I want. My hope is not that everything will work out fine in this life. My hope is that Jesus is going to come back, fix the world, reign forever, and comfort me totally for anything I ever lost in this life. Yeah, it's good. It's good for you to be able to defend the faith. Have other defenses ready. As you get to know your friends, as you get to know your neighbors, you're going to know what their beliefs are, you're going to know what their confusions are, and you can learn to respond to them. Prepare. 
Prepare answers for their questions, for sure. But friends, the primary need, the thing I want you to get to first, because I believe most Christians, there's a lot of Christians that love their apologetics book and they stink at delivering an actual gospel. I want you to believe first that your primary need is that you personally know the gospel of the Lord Jesus and that you could show somebody that this is the reason you have hope even if the world mistreats you, even if people try to hurt you, even when things happen that would lead other people to sin or violent behavior, you can show my hope is in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, his eternal kingdom and his promised return. So how do we defend our hope to others? Like, what's our temperament as we do it? Have you guys ever seen somebody act like they're presenting the gospel or defending the faith and maybe not been somebody you would ever want to stand next to, period? The kind of guy that when they're talking, you're like, okay, I know we're technically on the same team, but please don't look at me like I'm with him. I kind of think it's the way that my wife looks at me from time to time when we're in public. <laughs> Two words. How do, you how do you defend the faith? How do you give that answer? Gentleness and respect. Those are the words for meekness and for fear. Very similar words to what we saw in Peter's commands to wives in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. What about meekness? Blessed are the meek. You know what? We don't go out on nasty attacks when people question us or our faith. We're not weak, for sure. It's not what we're supposed to be. But we are supposed to keep ourselves under control. And the word for, for fear is here. That's the same word for reverence. It's, it's the same, don't fear their fear earlier. We treat other people with respect even people who hate us, even people that are wrong, we treat them with respect because they are human beings created in the image of God. And in our defending our hope and in our defending our faith, we do not try to crush people. We do not try to humiliate people. We do not try just to insult people or disrespect people so we can have a nice little gotcha moment. That is ungodly. Now, am I saying that your words will never insult them? No. You know, people are insulted when you tell them the truth of Christ and the truth of what their sin is. But that's okay. But if you tell them that way and you're a jerk in the process, it's not. The Word of God has called you and me to show Jesus as holy in our lives. And that means that we will honor Jesus and we'll obey His commands even when it costs us. And when people ask us, how in the world can you believe what you believe? Or how in the world can you have hope when you know everybody hates you? We've got an answer. Our answer is the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we answer not, we don't have to be harsh. We don't have to be mean. We can be gentle and we can be respectful as we tell the God's honest truth. Ask yourself, which of these things do I need to work on most? Do you need to work on just knowing how to defend the faith? Do you need to know how to present the gospel? Do you need to know where to look for resources on answering hard questions? Great. Come talk to me. Come talk to an elder. We'll help you get started. I promise. 
Do you need to work more on being gentle? Do you need to work on respecting others who are different from you? I would start there with prayer. God, please help me to love people better so my responses are never nasty, never mean-spirited, just true. There are certainly some people out there that think the only way you can honor Jesus is to be as ugly and mean and nasty as possible to those who oppose Jesus. But God's word is clear that we're supposed to be gentle and respectful to others even as we confidently show them why we believe what we believe and why that gives us hope to carry on. All right, last point. Point four. You still with me? Good. 16 and 17. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So here we're still talking about what it looks like for you and me to honor Jesus as holy in the face of a persecuting, threatening world. And here we get the final call from Peter to live a holy life. Where do I get the point, by the way? The point is live holy. Did I miss saying that to you? Live holy. Hi, I need a keeper. Live holy. Now where do I get the idea that this point should be live holy? Well, Peter says, have a good conscience. What's he mean when he talks about your conscience? He means the part that is inside of you that helps you to know whether or not you're doing right or wrong. Your conscience, I believe, is given to you as part of the imago dei, the image of God that is in you. And your conscience should, if you don't damage it, help you feel good when you honor God and feel sorrow or shame when you don't honor God. Now, your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. But the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of a believer is necessary so that you can protect your conscience. So how do you have a good conscience? Your conscience must first be informed by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in the Word of God so that you know when you're honoring God and when you're not. So that means you need to study God's Word. That means you need to worship the Lord together with the people of God. That means you need to pray. That means you need to, to study with other people. You need to do the things that we often call spiritual disciplines. You work to develop a good conscience by not scarring your soul, if you will, by learning to tolerate and accept evil. Do you understand, I mean, sometimes we use today the word desensitized, but do you understand that the more evil that you tolerate taking in in your life, the more apt you are to hurt your conscience? Just make it dull? But as you grow in Christ and you love the Word of God, your conscience is going to become more sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God in line with the clear commands in the Word of God. Having a good conscience, by the way, it's more than your conscience being emotionally sensitive. Having a good conscience also means that you actually live in accord with your righteous conscience. And that means that you participate in God-honoring, Jesus-obeying, holy living. That's why I say live holy. If you want to show people that Jesus is holy, your life needs to match your confession that Jesus is your Lord. Your life, okay, this is going to be 
the most radical thing. If you're a Christian, your life is to be a Christian life. Is anybody blown away by that fact? Christian, little imitation of Christ. A little imitation of the goodness of your Lord. Your life is supposed to be that. We are not a people that say that you ever do good to earn the favor of God. You don't have to be good to have salvation and grace from God. But you know what? Your life is required to be good. And it will be transforming itself by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God toward the good. Because we are called the holiness. Now, does this mean that life is going to be easy if we live holy? No. Peter says you're going to be slandered. That happens, by the way. Even now, there are people out there that would label any Christian group that stands on biblical morality as a hate group. How many stories would I have to cite for you from the news for you to believe that the world is willing to call people who stand for good hate groups? The college in Canada that people couldn't be lawyers if they graduated their law school if they had a Christian covenant? The work in the United States to attack business people just for refusing to participate in immorality? There was one in England this week. I've forgotten what it was now because I just... It's too many. They keep happening all the time. People are going to accuse us of being evil. They're going to accuse us of being a stain on society, folks. But Peter says, if we live to the glory of God, honoring Christ, showing Christ as holy, if we live obeying the commands that Jesus Christ has given us, the people who slander us, they're going to be put to shame, he says. They're going to be humiliated. How? How are they going to be humiliated? Well, on the one hand, they're going to be humiliated because their accusations against us are going to look stupid. That, I mean, so, so just ridiculous, so totally false that not even lost people will be able to accuse us with a straight face. If you're living holy and someone says, nah, he's cheating on his wife. I never go anywhere with a woman, not my wife. Oh, well, still. Those people are put to shame when you live holy. That, that they're embarrassed. But on the other hand, when they stand before the Lord in judgment, they're going to be put to shame when the Lord upholds us for living in accord with His written word. Then verse 17 wraps up this paragraph with the simple, obvious reminder, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Brother, how logical is that? It is possible that God might will actually choose that we go through hardships for His glory. Those things sanctify us and they honor God. But we need to remember that there was a reward in suffering for doing good, but at the same time, it's not the same sort of thing to be proud of if you do evil, if you commit a crime, if you act like a jerk and then get hardships. Those are hardships you earn in this life for not being kind and not being obedient like God commands. Don't, don't brag on that. Don't celebrate that. But I said this point calls us to live holy. Why? If we're living pure lives to the glory of God and then we suffer, God is glorified. If we're not living to the glory of God, well, you may suffer and that may help you repent, but it's not glorifying God in the same way and it's not bringing you a blessing in the same way. 
So the last section here reminds us really of the first. God says live well for his blessing. And sometimes when we're kind and sometimes when we're loving, people are going to treat us good. And you know what, guys? There are times you can be kind and loving and gracious to people and they won't treat you well. But you know what? God's blessing is at the end of that path either way. We are supposed to fear God. We're not supposed to fear man. We're supposed to show others that Jesus is holy. He's the Lord. Even as we try to help them understand, this is why we hope in the gospel. Here are the reasons. And we treat other people kindly. And we treat other people respectfully. We are meek in the process. And we are to live holy lives, even if it causes us to suffer, to the glory of God. Now, if you don't know Jesus right now, I could imagine that you think this sounds like a pretty bad deal. Sign up for some suffering. Sign up. I got a religion here for you that will make you miserable. And you know what? I could try to sell it to you by telling you, but it's all worth it in the end. And it would be true. But you know what the bottom line is? We follow Jesus because He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no person ever gets to God except through Him, and there is no other option. We are sinners who need a Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. And when we come to Him in faith and repentance, He gives us life. He gives us such a life, such a promise of eternity, such a new purpose that we're willing to walk through suffering as Christians because we want the joy of the glory of God that's been set before us. So yeah, I do urge you, believe in Jesus and surrender your life to Him. And if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, follow Jesus faithfully, even in a hard world, for His glory and for your eternal good. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm grateful for your honest word. It tells us quite clearly that this is not always going to be easy but your holiness is worth it. The blessings of eternity are worth it. The joy set before us is worth it. Truth is worth it. And I pray you'll just help us to be an obedient people who hear your word and we reshape, transform, repent, change, li- change our own lives by your power, because of your work, sanctify us, God, so that we might please you. And then we might live people who are ready for gospel suffering. Lord, I would plead with you to protect us from it because we're so weak and we don't want to be broken. But I trust you and you'll take care of us. And there's nothing we can face that is not worth it for your glory. Give us joy in your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.